Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, the first 13 verses of chapter 11. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we for ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I think we all know the meaning of the phrase, lost in translation. If you've ever been in a place or a country where their native language is not your native language, you know how it works. You try to speak their language and they try to speak your language and neither party really knows what the other one is saying and things get lost in translation. You don't have to be a world traveler to experience this. If you've looked at appliance manuals or other instruction manuals, you can spot pretty easily if English is not the first language of the person who wrote the English language instructions. You can figure it out. may not be the perfect words they use, but they got a word close enough. But something got lost in translation. Something has been lost in translation in our scripture passage this morning. It's not all that unusual. Some people, despite what some people think, that the Bible came to us in English, the King James Version English, it came to us instead from two ancient and complex languages, Hebrew and Greek. And there is a word in this passage that is only used once in the entire New Testament, 
and so it's difficult for translators to know what it means. But in our version and several others, it is translated as persistence. Now, persistence is not necessarily a bad thing. Thomas Edison persisted through a thousand or more failed iterations before he got that light bulb thingy of his to work. And most of us are glad that he did. Some time ago, weeks ago, months ago, I've lost track. I don't know why. I don't care why particularly. But there were some leaders in the Senate who tried to get their colleague Elizabeth Warren to sit down and be quiet. Nevertheless, she persisted. Some people were thrilled. They made t-shirts. Other people were angry, upset, aggravated, annoyed, which is my point. In our context, our world, persistence comes with it uh, a tag of annoyance or aggravation. The person persists and your only reward for doing whatever it is they want done is that the annoyance stops. Some of us may have childhood memories of what happened when we persisted with our parents one time too many. So persistence is maybe not the best word to use. We wonder how we got here. How did we come up with a popular understanding that if we badger, harangue, nag, pester God long enough, then God will reluctantly, begrudgingly, grumpily give us a little of something that we want. That's not the relationship we want to have with God, and it's not the relationship God wants with us. I think the problem begins because words are not the only thing that get lost in translation. We sometimes forget or don't know how to translate our time, our culture, to biblical times and biblical culture. Most of the biblical scholarship, the commentary that we read, all of that got done in Northern Europe, in countries like Germany and England and Ireland and Scotland and Switzerland. Now in those countries, as in this country, you get up when the sun gets up, you work hard all day, and then you go to bed tired and wake up again the next morning. And if anybody comes to your house, your cabin, your cottage, in the middle of the night, it is perceived as either a threat or the tidings of bad news. But in other parts of the world, particularly the Mideast and Southern Europe, the culture is different. 
the book group I'm in met a couple weeks ago, and uh, we are mostly retired pastors. One of us was absent because he'd taken a tour group to the Holy Land. And another one of our members asked incredulously, incredulously, who takes a group to Israel in July? It's hot. Well, in a time before air-conditioned tour buses, travelers would travel early in the morning, in the day, and at the heat of the day, they would stop, put out a tarp, find shade, get water, and they would rest. That, incidentally, is pretty much the same instructions that the people in London received this week when the temperatures got hot enough to melt their airport runways. So I don't think I have to instruct anybody about the dangers of heat this week. Our early travelers would then continue when the sun started to go down. They would travel into dusk and even into the night. Now travel at night had its own dangers, but dying of heat exhaustion was not one of them. So coming to a village, coming to a person's home at midnight or in the middle of the night may not be regular, but it wouldn't be all that unusual either. There is more than climate involved in this. The people of Israel, in their collective memory, have the stories of their ancestors in the exodus from Egypt. They remember the stories of wandering in the desert, wondering where they could get water, wondering where they would get food. They remember God's harsh judgment against, against the Ammonites and the Moabites who did not give you food and water when you came up from the land of Egypt. So they were very adamant about their emphasis on hospitality. And each village was responsible for the hospitality that they offered to any and all strangers at any time, day or night. You're familiar with this a little bit. Uh, Keith mentioned this in his sermon in late June in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was going through Samaria. Some of the disciples were ahead of him. They were kind of the advanced men. And so as Jesus came to this one village, James and John, the sons of thunder, came out and said, these people would not receive us. And if they do not receive us, they do not receive Jesus. They do not receive us. Do you want us to call down fire upon these people? Well, that may have been a little bit outside of James and John's pay grade, but... The point is, he didn't say, Lord, can we send fire down to that house over there? They slammed the door in our face. And Lord, that house up on the hill, they said ugly things about us. And, and those people over there, they just looked at us and shut the door. No, it's the whole village. The entire village is responsible for hospitality to strangers. And in this case, the entire village failed. But Jesus, being Jesus, was on his way to Jerusalem 
And he took his disciples with him and they went on to another village. This parable of the friend at midnight is really about honor and shame. This is the, the culture of that nation and that region of the world. When the friend who comes to the neighbor who's locked in for the night comes to him, there is no insistent pounding at the door, he comes to him, he speaks to him, they're friends, he knows his voice, there is no threat, there is no danger. But the friend does not appeal on the basis of friendship, but rather on the honor of the thing. Or said another way, the avoidance of shame. The person who comes to his neighbor's house knows that the man inside, when he is reminded of his communal obligation, will not refuse. When we focus on the adverbs, how we pray, persistently, boldly, impudently, shamelessly, whatever the word is, we're focusing on ourselves, which is what we do best. We want to know how we can pray to get God to give us what it is we want. But Jesus has begun to change the question. He's, he's starting to give a response to a question that the disciples and we never thought to ask, but should have. They asked him, how should we pray? And he told them, Father, hallowed be thy name. He gave them the Lord's Prayer. He told them how to pray. Now he's moving on to answer the other question. What is the Father like? Who is this Father? This passage is bounded by the word Father. At the beginning in the prayer and at the end about the Father's gifts. Who is this Father to whom we are praying? That's kind of an urgent question in those days because some of you may have had difficult fathers or unloving fathers. Nobody in this nation has fathers that had the power over their children that Roman or Gentile fathers had. Fathers could do all kinds of cruel things to their children legally, including have them, having them scourged and flogged and so forth. So this question, what is the father like, is an important one for Luke's audience. Jesus often compares something we don't really know about to something that we do, or at least his first century audience did. What is the kingdom of God like? To what should I compare it? Well, it's like a mustard seed that you put in the ground and it becomes a large bush. Or it is like yeast in the flour that, that leavens the whole loaf. That's what he's doing here. What is the father like? He is like the man who was locked in his room, locked in the house, in for the night. The father will 
get up. He will rise up. That's language of the resurrection. The Father to whom you pray will rise up. He will get up. He will do what is right and honorable and just for his entire community. He will respond in a loving way. He will do the right thing. This is the God to whom we pray. Any words that we use, that the translators have used, is fine. Persistent, bold, impudent, that's about us. It's not the words that we use, but the attitude. Do we approach God? Can we approach God? Not in a trying to bargain or cajole or or wheedle your way into something. Can you can we approach God as we would a loving father who we know loves us and wants what is best for us? There's a difference between the shrill persistence of a two year old over some trinket and the persistence of a loving mother and father who pray for their children every night. This is what Tish Harrison Warren says in her book, Prayer in the Night. There is really no wrong way to pray. You cannot fail at prayer except by giving it up altogether. But prayer can malform us if we suspect we are praying to a God who can barely stand us, who is malevolent and angry and out to get us, who rolls his eyes when we call to him, who we have to convince to hear us. We don't pray to convince God to see our needs. He asks us to pray to him, to tell him what we most long for, because he loves us deeply. We enter into the practice of prayer in response to the fact that we are already loved. God's love and devotion to us, not ours to him, is the source and the basis of our prayer. In this passage, Jesus is teaching us not only how to pray, but who it is we're praying to. At other times, Jesus has said that God knows our needs before we even ask. But here he's saying, make your needs known. Speak them into existence. Put your cards on the table. Speak plainly, clearly. Speak your needs, your desires to God. Let your loving Father help you become the person you both know you can be. So pray directly. Give us, forgive us, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. God will hear. God will rise up. God will get up. He will do the right, honorable, good thing. God will not, God cannot even give malicious, hurtful, harmful gifts 
God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. He wants what is good for His community. He wants what is right for all of us. The psalmist says, The Lord will give good gifts. James says, Ask God, who gives to all, generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. Paul says, Let your requests be made known to God. Jesus says, Ask, and you will receive. Knock, and the door will be open. Search, and you will find. Ask, search, knock. Do not let any of your words before God be lost in translation.